As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Pay attention to the numbers. Wealth compounds through mathematics. Your wealth is determined by the expectancy of your investment strategies. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure. Free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name. Episode 565 titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And... He is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free and then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company, and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluffy stuff. With us today, Todd Tresseter. How you doing, Todd? Doing good, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Todd. He is a financial coach and owner of financialmentor.com. At the age of 23, his net worth was zero bucks. And 12 years later, he was a millionaire. He retired at age 35 from hedge fund investment manager, that was responsible for a $20 million plus portfolio. He's done tax liens. 
He has had ownership interests in apartment communities. He's bought a bunch of acreage. And he got out of all that stuff right before 2008. We're going to talk to him about that. So with that being said, Todd, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus, and then we'll rewind. Sure. So my background's hedge fund investing. I'm a quant. So I came up through quantitative analysis of what I call paper assets, so normal securities markets. And I was one of the early pioneers of computer algorithmic trading. So I developed a lot of that. I started developing it while I was in college. I had this crazy idea in an investments class that I took up to my investments professor. I said, I was looking at all these charts of different stocks and stuff in investment books. And I went up to him and I said, you know, I can make money off that mathematically. I don't have to know anything about it. Hmm. And I got to give you a context for this because I'm a bit older. Computers were just brand new. The Apple were still being made in a garage. IBM was just coming out with the first PC. It was an 8088 processor. It was slow as snails. So for me to run around and say that I could do computer algorithmic trading was just completely <laughs> harebrained, but it worked. We built a whole hedge fund around it. That's how I built my wealth originally. And then we sold the hedge fund and I branched off into real estate, which is where this story picks up. Hmm. So you sold your hedge fund, went into real estate. Roughly how much did you have to invest at the time after you sold your hedge fund? I don't give exact dollar amounts. I'll say it's in excess of a million. Okay. So you had over a million dollars. What'd you do with it? Well, part of it I put into real estate. I wanted to diversify. So I had a strong paper asset background, but I also had enough background to know that there's risks, there's volatility. And I wanted non-correlated sources of return. I also wanted cash flow producing sources of return. So real estate's obviously the natural avenue for that. So I started developing real estate portfolio and being the financial junkie that I am, I went into a variety of strategies. So I did tax liens. I got hooked on this idea of acquiring real estate for pennies on the dollar, as all the marketing promotion says for doing tax lien investing. So I went down that avenue. And then I also had kind of an interesting insight, at least interesting to me at the time. Back then, you could do non-recourse financing on large properties. Mm -hmm. So I figured out that I could buy a large apartment complex for about the same risk or less than I could buy a single family home. And so... I went, well, why would I do one versus the other? So here I am, kind of a new investor, and I'm realizing the risk-reward is in favor of large apartment buildings. So I'm fairly new to real estate, and I went straight to large apartment complexes. The first one I purchased was a 62-unit building, and the second one I bought was 101 units. And I did that with none of my own money, the second one. That was a completely leveraged deal using investor money. All I did was assemble the deal. Mm. Let's talk about each of those real quick. The 62-unit building, that was all of your money? It was family money as well. My mother-in-law, she's passed away now, but she was a partner in that deal as well. She was trying to get into real estate. So I put the deal together, but she was a half investor and I was the other half. Okay. What year was this, by the way? 1998. 1998. Your first large deal in real estate is a 62-unit. No, no, let me be clear. It was my first investment real estate purchase. Oh, you didn't do tax liens before that? No, no, no. My first purchase ever was 62 units with okay. my own money. And where were you living at the time and how far away was it from where you were living? That's a great question because that was actually my downfall. I was an out-of-town investor. I lived in Reno, Nevada, and I bought in Kansas City, Missouri. And again, the angle on this, because I'm a quant, I was driven by numbers. Yep. So the numbers are obviously more compelling in the Midwest. The problem is, and I'm sure you're totally aware of this, the inefficiencies of running an operation from out of town was overwhelming. I built it into my budgets, but I was way off base. 
I had no idea. I remember running across some information when I was creating my strategies and stuff where they talked about the dishonesty of property managers, but I just way underestimated the level of dishonesty involved. <laughs> I went through five property managers in four years and I wasn't even getting lowbrow guys. These are like the top of the line in the area. I'm not going to name names because I actually won a $475,000 lawsuit against one of them. Wow. <laughs> yeah, for mismanagement. They had stolen so much money and mismanaged the property so poorly. And I actually documented it. I did a full forensic accounting. <laughs> I presented it and the insurance company just rolled over. So I'm not going to name names, but I went through five management companies in four years. And here's the thing, because again, these were done on non-recourse financing, like I was saying earlier. And one of the deals on that is you have to get changes in management approved, right? It's kind of a clerical process, but it was funny because I'd gone through so many managers so quick that the woman that ran the portfolio that my property was in, we actually got on a first name basis. So I'm just going to call her Jennifer for purposes of this interview. I call her up for my fifth rollover, and this was the breaking point for me. I call her up for my fifth management rollover and I said, you know, I'm replacing them again. I got another management company. I told her, I go, you know, Jennifer, I must be your stupidest owner. I cannot get this right. I genuinely thought it was all about me, right? That I was just so dumb that I couldn't get this right, that I couldn't figure out how to manage the building and get an honest property manager in there. And she said to me, she goes, Todd, you, you're my, no, you're the least of my problems. She goes, I got a whole portfolio of this stuff and they're all getting ripped off blind. The only difference is you watch them so closely, you catch them all. Yeah, that is a great point that our fake name Jennifer mentioned because that's what I wanted to ask you about. What were the signs that you identified? Because I guarantee that there's someone in the situation who's getting ripped off. So what did you identify that perhaps they can look for? Oh, we could fill five interviews. It was like whack-a-mole. You'd figure out how to plug one hole and they would open new ones. So let me give you the first manager just to give you something concrete to work with. The first manager, they had a multi-property portfolio in an area, and they had a maintenance team. So you would pay pro rata, and it sold you on the basis that this is going to be efficient because you're only paying for a portion of this maintenance team when they're actually working on your property. Well, how are the ways they steal from you? Well, they double, triple book the maintenance guys. So we had dubbed them. I actually got to know several owners within this portfolio of properties being managed in this area. So I networked to them. We had a conference call and we started figuring out that they were doing anywhere from two to 300% billing on these two guys who we dubbed Tweedledee and Tweedledum, right? <laughs> One of the guys in the portfolio was flying out there anyway to check on his property. So he didn't announce it to the management company. He flew out there and monitored Tweedledee and Tweedledum for two days, just followed him around. And we're all getting double billed while they're in the donut shop having coffee and eating donuts in the morning. So we figured out that angle. And then another angle was in my due diligence, they're not allowed to own property in the same area because it's conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So the management company can't own personally the same property in the same area. But then they bought property after I had hired them. And then they were running maintenance expenses through my property that were being done on their property. <laughs> I could go on and on and on the number of ways. So the company that I actually won the lawsuit against, they were so egregious. I owned all the laundry equipment rather than leasing the laundry facilities. Mm -hmm. I owned them. So there should be a regular flow of quarters coming in. They claimed zero laundry revenue. Hmm. They were just pocketing the quarters, right? The you, I'm sure knowing you, you asked them, hey, what's going on with the laundry? The first month that you saw that, and what was their response? They just said there was no laundry revenue. They'd lie. They were only oh. lasted six months. 
Wow. It takes you a while. You can't just start off taking these guys to the grill. Of course, yeah. You're trying to build a relationship. You're out of town. You're kind of dependent. So it's yep. not like you can just come in with both guns firing and claim these guys are idiots. The other thing, too, the company that I won the lawsuit against, these guys were both accountants by trade. Mm. So they were trained accountants, and they were cooking the books. Real estate is not rocket science. You've got gross potential income. You subtract your vacancies, subtract your delinquencies, and you should have collected rents. None of the numbers reconciled. And they had these bogus accounting entries. And I would challenge them on it month after month. And I'd say, look, I'm not rocket science at this, but you guys are trained accountants. This stuff's got to reconcile. And it never did. And that's when I started the forensic accounting. And once I got some of the documentation, bam, they were fired and replaced. Mm -hmm. But just to give your listeners an idea of how much this theft can cost you, I finally did get an honest company in there. I got one company as a young company. They weren't established and they had this young Hispanic couple that was really honest and really good working. And they took over my building. They put the young Hispanic couple in there. And these people were totally honest. They tracked everything. Like if I was getting new carpet put in, I would spec out. It's new carpet with new padding. Mm -hmm. And they would monitor the job as they would do it. And they would call me up and say, Mr. Todd, I wanted to make sure you said new padding, right? They're trying to roll the carpet over the old padding. I just wanted to check with you. I'd say, Absolutely. She would catch stuff like this, or like I specked out a new roof, and I gave her all the details of the roof. They went up there and checked on it several times a day. She calls me up. She goes, she wouldn't call me by my real name, respect issue, I guess. I don't know what. But anyway, she'd go, Mr. Todd, I was noticing that they hadn't torn the roof all the way down to the plywood like you had specified mm. when you wrote to me. They're trying to tar over the new roof. Is that acceptable? And I'd be like, absolutely not. She would document it. Wow. My costs, I improved the building and my costs dropped in half with their management. My overhead costs, while they improved the building, they turned over the entire inventory in one year, and my costs were still half of what they were when thieves were in there. Wow. I want to talk briefly about the 101-unit building and then what happened to all these buildings. So 101-unit, because you certainly piqued my curiosity, I'm sure the listeners, you had no money in it. You raised all the money from investors, and then you had an ownership interest as a result of putting it all together. Yeah, so I got 10% of the building. So I got 10 units, basically, for no money, just for assembling the deal. And what it was, it was I'd done a good job of negotiating. It was well below market. Basically, these people, even with giving me 10% of the deal, they basically closed on double what mm. they put into it. So they doubled their money at the closing table with me having 10%. And I didn't even have to manage it. One of the other partners managed it. So literally, I just assembled the deal and took 10 units for assembling the deal and negotiating it. It was a very complicated deal. And that's one of the reasons I got it was the seller was very wealthy, aged attorney. And he had cleared out his entire portfolio as he prepared for death. And he was down to three large properties. He had a massive property portfolio. He had sold everything. He was down to the final three, and they were all problem properties. And so he was just done. And the money was irrelevant to him. He had more money than he'd ever spent, and he was just giving it all away anyway. So he just needed the thing done, and he felt that I had the skill to get it done. And it was a really complicated loan package because we had to get improvements, and we had to package it all in and get the improvements done, get the investor money. It, it was a lot of effort. But in the end, it was a fun adventure to get 10 units for just putting a deal together. Mm -hmm. In that type of structure, do you take an acquisition fee? No, I took the 10 units. So in other words, I walked the talk with them. I positioned myself in alignment with the owners. Got it. You just didn't have any money in it, but you got the equity via the 10%. 
Yeah, so they got access to a deal they never could have gotten otherwise. They didn't have the skill or the connections or the resources to put it together. I had those, so they just put up the money. And it was really a stupid deal, Joe, when you think about it, because I gave away so much equity. I would have been far better off using my own money and keeping all the equity for myself. How much did you raise? A long time ago, Joe. I'm not recalling the exact. No, a million, two hundred thousand, ten million. Which number's closest? Well, no, the deal was just under two million because it was just under twenty thousand a unit. Oh, okay. It Got was it. a two million dollar deal, and we sold it for about forty-two thousand a unit four to five years later. Okay. And most of the equity was built at the closing table because what we had done. Just to give you a quick story on it, the property was one of those 1970s properties where they have the mansard roofs. It's a two-story building. The Mansard Roofs go within about two feet of the ground. And these were particularly hideous because the Mansard Roofs were practically falling off the property. And then, so what I did was I went in, we tore the Mansards off, resided the buildings, put all new windows in, and then redid the parking lot and then put wrought iron gating all around it and new landscaping. And so literally the building was so transformed in its appearance that an old maintenance guy who was re-interviewing for a job past the building. He didn't even recognize it (laughs) because it was completely transformed. And as you know, most tenants decision is made before they ever walk into a unit. Well, this guy had put all his money on the insides of the units because it was going to be such a hassle for him to fix the building up from the exterior. So the interiors of these units were beautiful. He had dumped money into them. They had new carpet, new appliances. That's where all your money goes, right? But he had never done the exterior, but the exterior is where everybody's judging your property. And so I went in, redid the exterior. He had already dumped the money in the interior. We didn't have to do much to the units themselves. And the numbers on the building were transformed. Suddenly we could get people in there. The occupancy went back up and then bam, we sold it a few years later for a fat profit. And again, as I said, I was stupid because I got 10 units. I made eh, 200 grand on it, but I left 2 million on the table. I threw away 2 million to get 200 grand. Mm -hmm. So the leverage wasn't worth it. I would have been far better off keeping the deal. The value was in my creating the deal. And last question on this, and then I'd like to ask about you exiting these deals across the board. The 62 unit, what did you buy it for and what did you sell it for, if you can remember? Very similar numbers. It was about 18000 a unit and about 42000 a door. The, all these are out in the Midwest. And the analysis I had was I had strong job growth. As you know, the value property is determined by the income growth of the area. And so I had strong job growth in these areas that I was targeting And they were low cost in terms of purchasing or acquisition. My analysis showed it was going to take about 65,000 a door to build competing buildings. And so I figured I had a pretty safe run for rent increases until values jumped up to the middle forties. And then I was going to sell, which is exactly what I did. So now these properties plus some other stuff that you had, you exited out of at what point in time and why? I tried starting selling about 2005, but as you know, you don't move large buildings quickly. It takes a while. And so I started really kind of warming up to the idea of getting out of them. 2005, I had tenants in the buildings that didn't even qualify to rent from me. Their credit was poor and they were getting 30 year loans for like $300,000 houses in the area. And these apartments are renting for like 600 a month kind of thing. Right, And this guy didn't even qualify to be my tenant. Of course, I know that because he's applying as a tenant. I see his credit history. And it was just a real wake-up call. I went, my gosh, this happened once. It happened twice. I was like, if these tenants can qualify for a $300,000 loan, who's left? Mm -hmm. I already felt like I was dragging the bottom of the barrel just to try to fill the building because, again, you got to go back in time. The credit environment was so permissive 
and it was kind of a go-go period. And so it was really hard to get quality tenants back then. Most people weren't renters. The better quality people weren't renters, they were buyers. And now all of a sudden the lowest quality was buyers. And the other thing too, I had a little bit of privilege from being a coach and I was coaching people on building wealth. And I noticed, and I've been doing it for a long time, and I noticed that suddenly I had every client was coming to me wanting to get rich in real estate. Mm -hmm. And then I was analyzing deals with them, and the deals made no math sense. Like Even the prices they were going to offer me for the properties, I didn't feel they were worth what they were offering me. I certainly wouldn't have paid them, and I knew the buildings inside out. Mm -hmm. And so it was all a lot of indicators, and I went, you know, I kind of did this wrong by buying out of town to begin with. I did really well on a lot of points. I bought them right, so I negotiated them well. I got good prices on them. I had good loans on them. I did a lot of things well, but buying out of town was kind of my downfall. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, you know, I really bought myself a headache. I was ready to get rid of them anyway. And I looked and I said, I don't know if this is a top in the market because nobody can call a final top, but I knew that the risk reward was way out of balance. And I just said, I'm done with this. Let me start selling. So effectively, I think first deal unwound in 2006, second deal unwound late 2006, maybe early 2007. And then I had a lot of miscellaneous stuff, some houses and some acreage and all that sold fairly quickly. So I got down to just the home I live in by the time the downturn occurred. And now fast forward to today, are you doing real estate investing? If so, why or why not? I have not. I'm not comfortable with financial leverage at this time. The thing about financial leverage, and I missed out, right? So you don't hit all strikes in this business. Every now and then you miss them. And so, yeah, it turns out I would have been better off grabbing a falling knife in the 2009 bottom, but I really didn't believe the government bailouts were going to work. And I still feel like all they've really done is kick the can down the road and reinflated the balloon. So the thing about financial leverage and real estate, I have kind of a policy when I buy real estate. I really want to get back in. But I have a policy, which is when I buy it, I have to be comfortable being stuck with it. I have to feel like the market goes illiquid. If market turns down and I'm stuck with it, I got to be happy owning that thing at prices that I've seated it in my area, Reno, because I'm not willing to buy out of town again. The numbers don't make sense to me. As far as buying it and being comfortable being stuck with it, I would think if you're making more rent, that covers your expenses. It doesn't matter what the value is as it goes up and down. Because Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. If you're positive cash flow with a margin of safety, who cares? Right. But that's not what I get here. Got it. Okay. These are premium markets. Pricing here is akin to California to okay. give you a flavor. And so pricing in my local market does not represent value. Based on your experience as a real estate investor and then also someone who has a broader background in investing, what is your best advice ever? Pay attention to the numbers. Wealth compounds through mathematics. Your wealth is determined by the expectancy of your investment strategy. So numbers drive the thing. But yet with real estate, if we're going to apply it, my paper asset investing is primarily mathematical in nature. I'm very mathematically driven in real estate as well. But the thing about real estate is an art form too. Real estate isn't just numbers. I have a thing I call them sick buildings. You know what I'm talking about, Joe, where it doesn't matter what you pay for a building, it's never going to work. And there's other buildings that even if you paid a premium over time, they're going to work out. So there's an art form to real estate too. You have to go beyond the numbers. You have to balance your numbers with insightful analysis. If you're not doing real estate investing now, what's the primary thing you're making the most money on? Well, business for one, my financial mentor business is profitable as well as my paper asset portfolio, which I still use the same strategy I did back in the hedge fund days. You ready for the best ever lightning round? 
first, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. Adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Do you want to learn more about the real estate buying and selling process? Learn to earn passive income with the cash flow guys as Tyler Chef and his team discuss their secrets to creating cash flow. Check out the Cash Flow Guys podcast at cashflowguys.com. That's C A S H F L O W G U Y S dot com. What's the best ever book you've read? <laughs> okay, so first of all, you got to know something about me, Joe. I'm not a superlatives guy. So best ever book, there's a lot of great books. I'll just name one that I've gotten a lot of value out of that I've shared with a lot of people, which is The War of Art mm-hmm. by Stephen Pressfield. And the thing that's amazing about that book is anybody that's moving forward in their life is going to run into this thing he calls resistance with a capital R to deify it. And it's hard-coded into our DNA. And this resistance is a major factor in what keeps people from achieving their goals. And so it's just a beautiful little book, quick little one-page stories and things that really gets you clear on what resistance is and how it negatively impacts your life. So it's a great read for anyone. From your real estate background or experiences, what's the best ever deal? Best ever deal. I would say that deal I put together for investor money. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, 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 no. Hold on a sec. No, it's not. Uh, The taxing deal. Got a perfectly rentable house. It's not a great value. I mean, it's probably worth 60, 80,000 bucks. And I think I was into it for about $800 in back taxes. So that was obviously the best deal ever. If you were getting deals like that, I assume, maybe I shouldn't assume, but I assume they were out of your city. Why wouldn't you continue to do that? It's an ugly, ugly business. In the end, you have to be happy and you have to like what you're doing with your life and your energy and your time. I developed a strategy to sort out the high probability tax liens that would actually fall through to deed. So I developed a system. There's anecdotal evidence that correlates with fall through to deed. And so I would do all the research and find the liens and gather them up and do all the processing and everything. Sure enough, I was right. It worked. What was the main takeaway for the connection? Well, they have to be free and clear, which usually means easy come, easy go. Somebody got them easy come, easy go. They're usually gifted or inherited. So people aren't paying attention. And the generation that paid for it is usually not the generation that loses it to taxes. Yep. And then you take that and combine it with some problematic life story. Usually drugs, jail time, crime, whatever. There's this sad story of human despair associated with a property that will fall through nearly always. If it's valuable, you also have to be very careful of environmental disasters. So you have to do your due diligence on each individual parcel because a lot of them that fall through are falling through because they're truly valueless or negative value because they have an environmental disaster. Mm. Assuming they're valuable, they'll fall through for totally all the wrong reasons, if you will. And so when you start gathering your wealth through a game plan built around that, it's really ugly business. I went through several years of it, and I had one deal that just, it was a really sad story. A grandmother gifted a grandson a home when she passed away. Son lived in it with his lover. There was guns. They were terrorizing the neighborhood. There was drugs. The grandson ultimately died of AIDS, the gay lover. There was a lot of crime involved, and eventually the police kicked him out. It was horrible. It was just this disgusting thing. And I'm in the middle of it serving the notices to the necessary parties. The family's coming back in saying they want it, but they have no title to it. It was just horrible. 
Yeah. I finally I, just said it's just not worth it. On a completely different note. <laughs> <laughs> on a positive note. Yeah, yeah. what's the best ever? At least you can get an honest flavor for what would send somebody away from free and clear real estate for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, absolutely correct. I'm glad you shared that. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Through education, the business I'm doing. I love sharing my knowledge and sharing it at a cost-efficient price point so people get more value than they pay for. I love the difference it makes in people's lives. There's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't write me an email telling me how I changed their lives. And thinking back to any of the real estate deals that you've done, what's a mistake you made on the deal? Buying out of town, hands down. I did nine things out of ten right, and I did that one wrong. And I was warned. I'd read it, but I just thought that there's got to be a way to find an honest property manager. Luckily, I did find one long enough to turn it around and sell it. But basically... Buying out of town is just so inefficient that it's really hard. I don't know what your experience has been on that or what you've heard from other guests, but my experience was very one-sided. I guess the question I have for you on that is you made money on the 101 unit and on the 62 unit because you were buying properties that were cash flowing in a different market from where you lived. So there's an opportunity cost there. If you don't buy in out-of-town markets then if you don't have those opportunities in your market, then you wouldn't have had that cash flow and those chunks of change. Well, let me clarify. I made capital gains. A lot of cash flow got robbed in inefficiency. Mismanagement from the dishonest management. So the buildings were roller coasters. There was times when they would cash flow as the management was trying to impress me. And then as they went to thieving and they started lining their pockets and the buildings would roll over and go to negative cash flow. Now I'd fire them. I'd get a new one in. They tried to impress me. It would go positive for a while. Then it would go negative as they start stealing again. And on and on the circle went. And so it was never great from a cash flow standpoint, even though I had extraordinary values and a lot of equity in the buildings. And it's because of the thieving of the management and the inefficiency of the operation. But yeah, there was capital gains on the backside. But again, you got to understand, I'm pretty good with paper assets. I don't need the headaches to create the capital gains. Where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? Financialmentor.com. So I give away free book and I have a free course called 52 Weeks to Financial Freedom. And no, you won't get rich quick, but there's a whole framework that I teach around the path to financial independence and how it works, and it includes all asset classes, including real estate. So it's business entrepreneurship, real estate, paper assets, and it's for free. So it's over at Financial Mentor. Fascinating conversation. Could have talked to you about any one of these topics for a while, and I'm grateful that you were on the show from how to bust a crooked property management company and the things to look for, like double and triple booking maintenance people, to the successful syndications that you did with the 101 unit as well as the joint venture type of deal you did with the 62 unit and then the tax lien information pros and cons on both sides of that as well as the things that got your spidey sense tingling a little bit about the deals or the market rather with the tenants being approved for $300,000 homes who could barely qualify to rent $600 apartments So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Lots of lessons learned, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. Do you want to learn more about the real estate buying and selling process? Learn to earn passive income with the cash flow guys as Tyler Sheff and his team discuss their secrets to creating cash flow. Check out the Cash Flow Guys podcast at cashflowguys.com. That's C-A-S-H-F-L-O-W-G-U-Y-S.com.